Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I preached the following message on October 29th, 2017. This is my second sermon on Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. This passage raises so many interesting questions, I didn't think that one sermon would do it justice, so I want to spend more time with it. Mostly this sermon is about how Christ's atoning work on the cross has defeated Satan, and I'm going to talk about how that's true. So I hope you enjoy it. Our scripture again is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18, which I'm going to read now. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I heard a pastor say recently that when you are standing at the Grand Canyon, beholding the glory and majesty of it and of its creator, your thought at that moment is never, look at me, aren't I something special? I am so great, right? You, are, you might feel very small uh, in comparison to what you're looking at and very humble um, when you consider who you are in relation to our creator. I know that this is a lengthy and complex and dense passage of Scripture, but brothers and sisters, we are beholding the Grand Canyon in a way, because in this passage, um, the writer is giving us a summary of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a summary of God's saving plan. And 
Let us this morning enjoy this beautiful view. I will try my best to help make sense of what's going on. This is the second part of my sermon on this text. I want you to think for a moment back to the Exodus when God delivered the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. If you'll recall, he sent a series of 10 plagues on the Egyptians until finally the 10th plague, the Pharaoh relented and reluctantly released the people of Israel from slavery. I say reluctantly because after they left, he immediately sent his armies after them. And the good news is that his armies were drowned in the tide of the Red Sea and um, the people were, were safe. Um, but the climactic plague that God sent was the 10th plague, the Passover. Remember that? In Exodus chapter 12, God commands the people of Israel to sprinkle the blood of a lamb, an unblemished lamb, on the doorposts, on the lintel and doorposts of their houses. An angel would then pass over the, the country of Egypt and strike down the firstborn son of every family that did not have the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. Um, and of course, this final plague was, uh, was so effective, as I said, that the Pharaoh eventually gave in. When we read or hear about this event, we think, of God's anger toward the Egyptians and his judgment on the Egyptians. The Egyptians are getting what they deserve. They're the the villains in the story. God is punishing them, right? But not so fast. If the Passover were all about God's anger at Egypt and his punishment of Egypt and his judgment on Egypt, if it were all about that, why would God bother having the people of Israel sprinkle the blood of the lamb on their doorposts? Why wouldn't God simply send the angel throughout the land and strike down the firstborn of the Egyptians and just ignore the Israelites? I mean, why did the Israelites have to do anything? They were the good guys. They were the heroes. They were innocent victims, right? Well, wrong. It's clear that if the Israelites hadn't obeyed the word of God and sprinkled this blood on their doorposts, they would have fallen under the exact same judgment as Egypt. Their firstborn children would have died as well. To be sure, it was a great mercy on God's part. God showered them with grace by giving them a means of escaping his judgment through the blood of the lamb. But in sparing their lives, God was not giving them what they deserved. And their lives were only spared by this blood. Their deliverance from slavery and death was made possible through an act of God's grace through the blood of the lamb. Now, you can, if you're a Christian, you can probably imagine why God did things like this, in this way, to point us to that future sacrifice when God himself in the person 
of his son Jesus would would shed his own blood to spare us from God's judgment. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 looked forward to Jesus' sacrifice when he says that Christ was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. John the Baptist looked forward to this sacrifice in John chapter 1 when he saw Jesus coming and he, and he tells his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus looked forward to this sacrifice during his last supper, which after all was a Passover meal, when he told his disciples, this is my body and this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was telling his disciples, in other words, I am going to be your Passover lamb. The Bible's message is crystal clear. If God is going to forgive us, justify us, save us, deliver us, liberate us, give us eternal life, give us abundant life, whatever you want to call it. If he's going to do that, he first has to deal with our problem with sin, which he can only deal with by offering the bloody sacrifice of the Lamb of God. His son, Jesus Christ on the cross. God absorbs God's wrath, God's justifiable anger towards sin. I mentioned this two weeks ago. I talked about God's wrath briefly. Let me come back to it. I know I know that there are many Christians who don't like to think about God having justifiable anger toward us and our sin. Um, They say God is love. So why would God be angry at us? But what's the alternative? Um, If if God, if God uh, wouldn't, uh, if God weren't angry, he wouldn't be loving toward us. N.T. Wright makes this point in the following way. The biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise and loving creator who hates. Yes, hates and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts or damages his beautiful creation. And in particular, anything that does that to his image bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise. But if God is going to root out all of this evil, he's going to have to root us out along with it. What does the psalmist say? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the implied answer is none of us. None of us could stand. But please, please, please don't miss this. While it's absolutely true that every one of us who've ever lived with one important exception deserve God's judgment and God's wrath because we're sinners. In the same breath, we must also say that God so loved the world, including you and me within it, that he planned before the foundation of the world to save us 
from his judgment and his wrath and his hell. We know just how loving God is by his willingness to come to us in the flesh, in the person of his son, Jesus, and suffer hell on the cross for us. As the Bible said, says God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, now I want to look at, at, at two things that the author of Hebrews in today's scripture says uh, result from what Jesus accomplished on the cross. First, verses 14 and 15. Through his death, the author says, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Then in verse 17, he became our faithful high priest who made propitiation for the sins of the people. I talked about propitiation in part one of this series. This is what Christ did to turn away God's wrath from us. Um, When the people of Israel sprinkled the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, that was a propitiation. But the author of Hebrews wants us to know that these two events, the destruction of Satan and the turning away of God's wrath are related. Let me make that connection. For one thing, as we look around the world and we scan our news headlines, it seems perfectly clear that Satan is alive and, well, if not well, he is at least active in our world. And as I've preached before, the Bible is clear that the devil has real power in the world to cause us great harm. God's word says that in the beginning, Satan was an angel along with the other angels, an angel who is he was created by God. He was given freedom just as we human beings are. And he abused that freedom just like we do uh, by rebelling against God. And like us humans who rebelled against God, Satan can cause can use his freedom to cause great harm. Of course, he can cause harm on a much larger scale than any one of us can. He has limited power to be sure. Satan is unable to do anything that God doesn't permit him to do. And whatever Satan does, God has this remarkable ability to transform it into something good. But Satan does have real power to affect our world and our lives. Um, I was listening to an interview recently with a Christian philosopher um, named um, Alvin Plantinga. Alvin Plantinga. Um, he, was, he is the 2017 recipient of the Templeton Prize. The Templeton Prize, uh, Templeton Prize is uh, awarded to uh, the person that year who uh, has made the, the biggest impact on religion and spirituality in the world. Mother Teresa, for instance, uh, was one of the previous winners of this award. It comes with a, over a one and a half million dollar uh, prize. Uh, and you also go to um, Buckingham Palace and Prince Philip awards the prize to you. This is a big deal. And Alvin Plantinga is a world-class philosopher. He's taught at Notre Dame and Calvin College. And, And he's often talking about God and he's making a case for the existence of God and for the truth of Christianity. He is an evangelical Christian. Um, 
And in this interview I listened to recently, he was talking about the problem of evil in the world and how we reconcile God's goodness and God's justice with this world that has so much evil. And he talked about the importance of human beings having free will, being able to freely choose or to reject God, to do good or to do evil. We we're capable of both because we're free. But then the interviewer asked him a more difficult question, perhaps. He talked about, he asked him about natural evil in the world. For example, what do we make of hurricanes and tsunamis and tornadoes? Or what do we make of diseases like cancer? How do we reconcile God's love and justice with that? And Dr. Plantinga said, I know this isn't a popular answer today, but I believe that those kinds of events happen in part through the power and influence of Satan. And that kind of blew me away. I mean, I thought that too, you know, but, I, but, uh, but to hear someone who's just a world-class scholar, intellectual genius, you know, like say that, it, say this is, this is the work of the devil. And you look in the Bible, Job chapter one and chapter two, Satan literally has the power to affect the weather and, and cause all kinds of disease and pestilence. It's, it's right there in the Bible. But as bad as these things are, as, ba- as much harm as, as Satan can do in our physical world, these things are not nearly the most harmful weapon in Satan's arsenal. What does Jesus say? Do not fear those who can kill the body and do no more, but rather fear the one who has the power to throw both body and soul into hell. That's God. No disease, no pestilence, no natural disaster has the power to cause any human being ultimate harm. Because none of these things, even if they kill us, has the power to send us to hell. Only one thing in this world can send us to hell, and that is our sins. And Satan is at work in the world right now, doing everything he can to keep us enslaved to sin, to keep us from repenting, to keep us from turning to God's son, Jesus, in faith and and, and, and finding eternal life. And even if we're already Christians and we have saving faith, he is working right now to undo that faith, to to cause us to, to abandon it. Satan's power. To tempt us is the most destructive weapon in his arsenal. And he's still wielding that weapon in our world, as we all know. And yet the writer of Hebrews tells us that somehow Christ's death and resurrection has destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil, as verse 14 says. Why? How is that possible? It's because of what the author of Hebrews says in verse 17. Christ became our merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Through Christ's sacrifice offered once for all time, all of our sins, past, present and future have been taken away. They've been wiped out. At the Bible study that I lead on Wednesday night, just last Wednesday, one of the 
people in the class, um, well, we were talking about the pervasiveness of, of sin, even in the lives of us Christians. And, and um, we talked about the importance of repenting of our sins as we become aware of them. As the Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And someone asked a good question. What if, despite our best efforts to confess our sins and repent of them, we die without, we we die with unconfessed sin and sin of which we have not Repented? Will we still be forgiven? Will we still be saved? Well, what's the answer to that question? Do you know? Before we answer it, consider this. We can't begin to know all of the sins we've committed in our life. Even the sins we've committed this morning. Even the sins we've committed in church. We're not just talking about the things that we do. We sin with every judgmental thought. We sin with every lustful thought. We sin with every prideful thought. We sin when we lose our temper. We sin when we lose our patience. We sin every time we fail to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. We, we sin when our, our love for God and neighbor is less than perfect. How do we manage to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves? How often do we do that? I mean, consistently. Not very often. So we will all die with unconfessed sin. Will we still be forgiven? The answer is a resounding yes. We will be forgiven so long as we continue to trust in Christ. Now, how do I know? Because Christ, our high priest, has made propitiation for the sins of his people. All of our sins, past, present, and future. The Old Testament had a sacrificial system in which priests offered the the blood of bulls and, and goats for people's sin. But the author of Hebrews tells us that these sacrifices were just a, a shadow of the good things to come. For it is, um, it is impossible, he writes, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But Christ's sacrifice, he says, was different. As he says in chapter 10, verse 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Did you hear that? I've told you before that I was adopted. I always knew from my earliest memory that I was, that I did not come from my mother's tummy, but that they, uh, that they got me from the hospital. Um, so I never thought much about it until around the fourth grade when some of my classmates found out that I was adopted and they began teasing me. And let me just say that back in the 70s, public school was not a bully-free zone or whatever they call it now. Um, We were taught back then that if you were bullied, you were supposed to fight back. And so I did indeed get in a fist fight with some of my 
classmates, and um, I got sent to the principal, and my parents got involved, and suddenly the fact that I was adopted was a very big deal, and an, an uncomfortably big deal. I just wanted it to go away, and let's not mention it again. But my parents, to their credit, wanted me to know that I was 100% a full-fledged member of their family. Now, I have two older sisters, one of whom is natural born, and they wanted me to know that I'm every bit as much a part of the family as she is. Um, In fact, they they said, unlike a, a natural born child, I'm extra special because after all, I was chosen, right? They chose me. And I'll be honest, even as a 10 or 11 year old, I didn't quite um, buy that, you know, buy into the idea that I was a cho- that I was chosen. After all, I didn't imagine that in the maternity ward of the hospital, they rolled out a bunch of bassinets and said, uh, Mr. And Mrs. White, take your pick. You know, I, I had a feeling that that they would have been happy with whichever child uh, they were given. But still, I, I get their point. I, I, there was a sense in which I was chosen um, and everything Everything that belonged to my parents, everything that belonged to my older sister, who was natural born, uh, now belonged to me, including their name, White, and everything else they possessed. And one thing was for sure, my adoptive parents, they would have laid down their lives to save mine, just as I would lay down my my life gladly to save my own children, just as you would to save your children if you have them. Um, The same is true of the one who adopted us into his family. Look at verse 11 of this scripture. For he who sanctifies, that is Jesus, and those who are sanctified or, or made holy, that is those of us who have placed our faith in Christ and accepted him as Savior and Lord, we all have one source, or as the NIV puts it, we all have the same Father. Now listen to this. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. You and I are brothers and sisters of Jesus Himself, Everything that belongs to our big brother, Jesus, also belongs to us, including, best of all, Christ's own righteousness. It's not that we Christians don't sin, but from God's perspective, we are every bit as holy as his son, Jesus, not based on what we've done, but what Christ has done for us. So what can Satan do to us now? How can he harm us? All he can do is accuse us. His name means literally accuser. He can say, you know, Brent, you really ought to be worried because Let's face it, you have sinned a lot. You've sinned a lot even since you were born again. You call yourself a Christian. Look at you. What a hypocrite. Are you kidding? And a pastor on top of that. And you're just a a big sinner. So, you know, when you die, you might be, should be worried about 
you know, what's going to happen to you and how you're going to be judged. You should be afraid of meeting God in final judgment after death. Well, what can we say to that? We can remember that if we're in Christ, it's as if we have adoption papers. And these papers are signed in the blood of the Lamb by Jesus Himself. So Satan's power over us is destroyed. Amen? Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you as best we can for this gift of salvation which you make available by the sending of your son. Let each one of us who has received this gift already treasure it in our hearts and do what the author of Hebrews wants us to do, which is to reflect on it, to remind ourselves of it, to be inspired by it, to live our lives in gratitude because of it, to keep coming back to this amazing story, the greatest story ever told. Help us to do that. Help us to be eager to share this message with others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I want you to know that you are welcome to come and worship with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We're on West Main Street, right in downtown Hampton. We have two worship services. We have a 9 o'clock acoustic contemporary service and a more traditional service at 11. Hope to see you there.